Hi, my name is John Beasold, and this is Dutch Art and Design Today. I've worked as a writer, editor, and journalist for the past 15 years, most recently at Out Holland, the world's longest surviving art historical journal, which covers the art of the Low Countries from 1400 to the early 20th century. The Netherlands is celebrated worldwide for its golden age art and its modern design counterparts, though rarely do those who work in these fields have the chance to explain that same work in their own words. In this podcast, I'll take you behind the scenes and tell the stories of the many museum curators, art educators, contemporary designers, and artists, and everyone in between. In each episode, I'll sit down with some of the key players and the tastemakers in the worlds of Dutch art and design. My next guest is Mike Yonkman, who is a senior curator of 19th century art at the RKD, which has, more recently, renamed itself the Netherlands Institute for Art History. It is located in The Hague, the Netherlands. Maiken is an art historian and researcher who takes an approach to her work that is kaleidoscopic in its nature. She first studied law, and then art history, and then worked at the Dulwich Picture Gallery in London shortly after finishing her MA. Then, after moving back to the Netherlands, she worked at an auction house where she specialized in provenance research, among several other positions that she has held throughout her career. Since 2007, she has been a curator at the RKD, focused entirely on the 19th century, and more specifically, within her work, the interactions and artistic exchanges between France and the Netherlands. Maiken has been a lecturer in art history at numerous universities in the Netherlands, and she also sits on the board of the European Society for 19th Century Art. She has also authored a seemingly endless stream of publications throughout her career. In this episode, we trace these events in her life, all through the prism of the fabulously multifaceted 19th century, with its many interlocking innovations as related to its society at large, from its cities, to its new modes of travel and transportation, to the then new medium of photography, and how all this affected that society's art. We then move on to discuss her PhD, which she is completing at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, and is entitled Retour de Paris, Artistic Exchanges Between the Netherlands and France, 1789-1914. We then discuss the exhibition that she curated, titled The Dutch in Paris, 1789-1914, which ran from late 2017 to early 2018 at the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, before moving on to the Petit Palais in Paris. Lastly, Maiken explains what it is about the art of the 19th century that most fascinates her, and to conclude, muses on what it is that makes this period in history so special, and what it can teach us about the society that we find ourselves surrounded by today. Maiken, welcome to Dutch Art and Design Today, and thank you very much for being my guest on the podcast. You're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. Uh, one of the things that I like to ask um, people who I speak with for the podcast mm. who I do not know on a professional basis um, or on a personal basis on a deeper level in this instance with you is what was your first memory of being um, touched or affected by an artwork? Mm. Which was it? Um, which medium? And why did it affect you in the way that it did? <laughs> um not an easy question, it's actually quite a nice one. Um, 
When I was young, it's actually, I think, probably mostly my mother. Uh, but uh, while growing up, we usually went to museums quite a lot, um, mostly on holidays. Um, but I think probably the, it's really strange. The, the exhibition that stands out most from my childhood is an exhibition in the Museum Boymans von Berning in Rotterdam mm -hmm. um, on Etruscan silver. Uh, which has nothing to do with oh. what I work on today. And there was this beautiful, I think it was a drinking horn, and it had a, um, a horse mermaid thing in my memory. I don't really know if it really had that, but I remember completely caught up with it. It was so intricate. It was, this, it, it was shaped like a, like a horn, And then on the top, you had a sort of a lid, I think, with this horse. And then the, the tails, there were two tails. And I remember completely fascinated by it. And it's, it, I remember dreaming about it afterwards. So it, so it really had an effect. Um, did it have so much effect for me to sort of, in the end, choose to study art history? Yeah. I'm not sure, but it, I do remember that it is the, the beauty of the object, you know, that 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 beauty uh, that sort of I was really caught up in that and I remember subsequently you know going to museums that I was searching for that aspects um, the strangest thing I found it years later probably when I was in secondary school again an exhibition at the Boymans von Boningen should they really have something to uh, to answer for uh, which was on uh, Kees van Donger um completely different but the the way he used color i mean it still is that, that in, especially in that early work i'm not a fan of case von Dorme, but yeah. it really ha it's it's so much power that speaks in that early work which is i found fascinating in the way the women were portrayed and they, you know there were strong women is what i remember thinking um, with real presence. So I, I, I like that. I, so that is, I think, the second really memorable exhibition that I saw. I think those would be the strongest from early childhood anyway. And would you say that um, you grew up going to exhibitions? That was like a natural part of your childhood? It was, yes, absolutely. Um, and I said it, it was, you know, especially during holidays. But I do remember that we went... Yeah, you know, especially with my mother that, and I, I think more than my brothers, that I, I really had something with art. So she sort of, sort of resonation. So she knew there was always somebody that would want to go. Um, so yes, absolutely. Nice. Well, the Netherlands um, has so many museums and it also makes sense then that if you appreciated aesthetics and beauty, that you found your way to the mm. 19th century. Um, I actually started out in the 17th century. Ah. Um, Which is, it, it, um, it, I, I actually didn't study art history to start with. Yeah. I studied law. Um, and that had a bit to do with the fact that my father, and it was said jokingly, but it, I, it's something that sort of uh, that resonated. Um, he said, I'm not going to pay for you to become jobless. Or to, sorry, um, okay, well, in that case, and I had two loves growing up, actually. <laughs> This is many you, parents' you, you worries. You remember this? <laughs> you had the same experience. Ah, but nevertheless, there you are. So um, anyway, I had two loves growing up, which was art, but it was also law. I, I was fascinated by 
um, that. So it wasn't a hard decision to sort of say, okay, well, I'll not study art history, but I'll study law. Mm -hmm. So I did. And it was a lot of fun. And I learned so much. But um, it, it is um, the, the, that beauty aspect, what I was talking about before. Yeah. It is, um, you can't find that in law. Yes, you find it in language. And the use of language was very important. Um, but I noticed that I needed the visual aspect of it as well. So in law, um, in the end, you know, you can you can sort of specialize in art. You have art law. Yeah. But in the end, the use of law, it, you can use that for art, but you can also use it for refrigerators, for instance. I mean, so it, it, it is a different aspect of it. So in the end, I... Uh, started studying art history next to law okay. as well. So after my graduation uh, and writing my MA thesis, I went to London to work, or actually to do a traineeship at the Dulwich Picture Gallery. Oh, that's special. Century. Yeah. Really, really lovely collection. Um, and I came back to the Netherlands and worked for an auction house, uh, which was then Glerum. It doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and they hired me because I spoke English and their specialist was an American who didn't speak any Dutch at all. Oh, handy. For, well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, especially because you get to see everything because I went along and did the translation. But in the meantime, I got to see all that art and see how, you know, the, the whole uh, auction house business works. So that is why 17th century. Um, and then I came here a lot to do provenance research and stuff like that. Yep. Um, so after um, uh, working for that small auction house, for the second auction house, which went bankrupt. Um, <laughs> and then there was a job here. Yeah. Oh. Um, part time in the modern art section. So I went from 17th century to modern art. Ah. Um, and I'm piecing then the thread together. In the end. 19th century and actually um, during all this while I um, I studied art history uh, part-time at the University of Amsterdam mm -hmm. um, uh, so so it is it's a really strange trajectory I understand the trajectory I understand that but um, I got to see a bit of everything um, so in the end I was lucky to find a job as a curator here for 19th century yeah um, and I really love the 19th century. It is it is such an exciting era. Uh, you do as well. Well, I'm just smiling because it's uh, it's so aesthetic oriented, and the, the the works that exist from it are just gorgeous. I mean, mm. That's my that's my quick comment. <laughs> <laughs> There's that part as well, yes. But there there is also um, uh, a very um, um, inspired. It's not exactly the word I'm looking for. Um, uh, there, there's a relevance to society as well. Yes. Art and society are really integrated. Yes. And the political side of things, you, you see that continuously. So there's a back and forth between um, the aesthetics and the um, more political side of art in the 19th century, which I find fascinating as well. It is it is something today is is it's so relevant for what's going on today as well. Completely. So, um, there you go. Sorry, this is really a, a lot of information in a short time, but you it's, have an idea. It's perfect. And one of the questions um, that I wanted to ask you um, was, yeah, not only how you found your way to the 19th century, but 
what studying law gives you um, mm. in relation to being an art historian because my own bachelor is in architecture. Ah. And um, when I came to the Netherlands and studied art history, everyone was rather confused. What do you mean? Like, are you going to do architecture? Because in the States, it's really normal to mm. um, get your bachelor in psychology and then go on to study art history mm. as a master or something. But here it's a bit more, that's seen a bit differently, let's yes. say. So I wanted to ask you, um, in addition to working at um, the Dulwich and also studying provenance, what does your background in law um, give you uniquely, you think, mm. on your own, in your own personal view, um, on art history as a profession and your take on it, as opposed to somebody who might have done their bachelor in art history mm. um, and their master in art history, mm. which is completely fine. But what do you think that um, that background sort of adds to your own work or allows you to see? For instance, I can see exhibition spaces and the mm. actual buildings mm. in the relation to art very differently than people without that architecture yes, background. Yes, I see. Um, that's actually quite an interesting one. I, I've thought about that for a few times. In the end, um, it probably has to do with... Um, um, language i think mostly ah. it is not so so much the the that i still use law on a daily basis yes. or what i learnt in law um and in the end for my profession today it is probably the use of language mm -hmm. the use of a specific word um can and especially in law which is actually the most exciting bit what i mm -hmm. think is the fact that if you use a, a term and it is not exactly what you mean, it is open to interpretation. And therefore, um, um, if you have, um, um, if, if you're in a, in, a, in a lawsuit or anything, that is exactly the part where they will try and sort of break open your case. That is also something that is uh, going on um, or is something that is relevant within art history. Is you have to sort yeah. of be very... Um, aware of the, the, the words you use. Um, and I, I, I really like the fact that it is, in Dutch it is less so, but when I write in English, mm -hmm. I find that that is something that I really find fascinating as well, which term exactly to use mm -hmm. to, sort of, to be able to express what you mean. So there's also always that sort of tension between what you have in your head and how the language and which language to use. So I think probably that aspect of law is something that I'm, you know, that really works for me in art history. It makes complete sense. English is very um, mathematical in mm. that sense. It can be very precise. Um, but when I speak in Dutch, it can be, I can say many things or express many things with just a few words, which I can't do in English. That's interesting. Yeah. Do you think so? So you think that I, I, what I really, th I find it the other way around. Mm -hmm. I find that in English, it, it, you have use so much more words uh, to sort of express a certain feeling, yeah. while in Dutch there is sometimes not enough uh, to sort of, to be able to sort of say what you really mean. So I find I it the other mean. way. Yeah. So I like that. It's a, it's a different take. Yes. Mm -hmm. Since we're sitting in the RKD in The Hague, um, a place that people might not be familiar with if they're not an art historian. And you're a senior curator of 19th century art here. Mm. Um, and if we were to translate this acronym, it would translate to something like the State Institute for Art Documentation. 
First, could you explain what this institute is um, mm -hmm. for those not familiar with it? Can you explain its pivotal role in art history, mm -hmm. for research, documentation, and just sort of describe the importance of it as a place for knowledge? Absolutely. I, I like the fact that you call it a place of knowledge. Um, that is, I think, probably exactly what it is. Um, we are a research documentation center uh, focusing on Dutch art from the early Middle Ages until today. Mm -hmm. um, what we have here is not so much artworks, although we do have a few. We actually do have quite a lot of drawings and prints. Um, but um, we um, have different kinds of collections which all cater to the um, to the research for in art history. So there is a image collection, mm -hmm. um, which is exceeds 8 million images. Dutch art, again, in an international context. Um, uh, the second collection is uh, a library, a very extensive library. We always, there's always a discussion, does the Rijksmuseum have the larger library or do we uh, have the larger library? Slight competition. <laughs> exactly. Um, they're both huge and they have so much books and literature and exhibition catalogs all kinds of, all manner of things. So if you are doing something in art history, um, come to the Arcadi, probably you always find information. Right, so the third collection is the archive collection. And that really is if you're doing research into artists, art dealers, art historians, you will find primary sources, letters, yes. um, um, other writings, photographs, which all have to do with this individual person or institution. And then the last one, which um, nowadays is maybe a little less relevant, is the collection of press cuttings. Oh. Uh, you can imagine that we, we exist since 1932, um, that I have had colleagues way before my time who had a scissors and did nothing else all day than cut out relevant press information, somebody articles, had to do it. exactly, <laughs> somebody had to do it. So you'd imagine that nowadays with all the different uh, press archives that are like Delphra here in the Netherlands, mm -hmm. but you have others um, all over the world, yep. um, um, they, that, they, that, that makes it a little rele less relevant, but there are so many obscure press cuttings and very, very small catalogues, which are paper thin and just one um, leaf with the information on it, you won't find that anywhere else. So you see how artists exhibited together. You see certain kinds of works that have never before been shown and then in that very small uh, gallery are put together for just two weeks. So it gives you so much information. So it is still a relevant archive to look. So um, in short, we have a lot of information and a lot of um, um, original sources um, in art history, on Dutch art, in an international context. So if you're doing something with Dutch art or maybe even international art, you need to come to the RPD. This is the place to be. Mm. And depending on how you look at it as well and um, what you're searching for, you will easily probably find uh, sources that have never been used before um, in the exactly. framework of your own research. Yes, so that, absolutely. Uh, and... Um, 
to go into what I do is um, I am actually a researcher and um, my idea of a curator at the RKD, and, and I think all the curators do that, is um, look for collaborations. So we are sort of, a, do you say that in English, a spider in the web? Yeah, um, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> well, it's, it's a Dutch expression. I don't, I'm not really sure if it translates. But uh, um, uh, so for museums, for universities, for other institutions, um, here in the Netherlands and, in abro and abroad, we look for collaborations or they come to us for a research project or an exhibition project. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we, you know, we collaborate a lot. And I, I really like that about that because you, this is my home. Um, but uh, sort of to sort of find these collaborations with all kinds of other institutions really, you know, is really an exciting manner of um, finding um, your role and maybe your relevance within the art world. Makes sense. Mm. Um, so one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you, uh, beyond, of course, that we know one another from my work at Out Holland, um, is that you're incredibly specialized in Dutch art, uh, focusing on paintings from the 19th century, of course, mm. many other artworks as well, drawings, uh, everything. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> the 19th century. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and because this podcast covers both design and art, and the two are related but not exactly the same, mm -hmm. and because it also spans a time period from the Middle Ages up to artists and designers working today, could you talk first about um, the 19th century in general? Um, for instance, for those who aren't familiar, the 19th century was a very pivotal year in, for instance, the modernization of cities mm. such as Paris, Manhattan, Berlin, many others. It also saw a boom in art and the establishment of what we would recognize today, perhaps, as the art market. So could you paint a picture of the 19th century for people who are listening? What makes this period special in history in relation to the arts, uh, even architecture? And then could you zoom in on what makes this period so unique within Dutch art history itself? Mm. Uh, I think the 19th century um, is not really um, that the things that happened in the 19th century um, were already happening in the 17th and 18th century mm -hmm. and went on in the 20th century. What I think is um, most, um, which makes makes the 19th century a life-changing era, is the um, is the expansion, the 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 um, the the the, um, the fact that mass media came that you know that newspapers that that information was so much easily more easily spread the fact that um the advent of the train of yes. steamships of um that people and not a few but it became a lot of people that traveled all over all over the globe um, um and that news you know was able to be spread within a day from you know Europe to America to um, uh, Hong Kong. It, it went that that is something that I think was 
pivotal for the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And that, um, um, that's, those events um, had an effect on art as well. Um, and you see how easily um, uh, different kinds of styles that, you know, followed each other um, were spread all over the globe. I think that is, that is the most um, pivotal event for the 19th century. Um, and also the fact um, that cities, again, became larger, that they became modern in um, sanitation-wise, that there was... Um, so there were th those, those aspects, it really has to do with a, a scale. Mm -hmm. um, and um, if, if we talk about, for instance, the art market, um, which was something that was always said that in the 19th century, uh, that was the moment that the art market really uh, got hold of the, um, the art world and that artist had to sort of... Um, um, had to deal with the art dealers, um, which is something indeed that did happen, but it was already there in, you know, it's its germination in the 17th century and the 18th century. Yeah. But it is, again, the scale and the fact that um, other institutions, well, I don't know if they became obsolete, but they were sort of dinosaur-like. I'm talking about Paris, <laughs> where we're talking about the Salon and the Académie des Beaux-Arts yes. and stuff like that, which is... Um, which you know, we, uh, you know, didn't they couldn't keep their hold on the art world. So things changed there as well. And the same in in the Netherlands. If we're talking especially about the Netherlands, it was always the art market. It was it was less of a a hierarchical society. That's, that's yeah. the word I was looking for. Thanks. Um, so th you know that is something. So the, the changes um, were always also seen in the Netherlands, but they weren't that. Um, pronounced. Exactly, pronounced, yes. Um, so I think those, you had one more question, I think, which I... Ah, and then, so um, if, if that's the picture of what's um, happening in the background of society at large, mostly in, for instance, Western Europe and mm. um, the United States, then how does this period, um, how does all that affect uh, what's happening in the Dutch art scene at mm. the time? Well, the interesting thing, especially after um, 1870 or so, um, is you see for the first half of the 19th century, um, there's still a lot of harking back to the Dutch 17th century. Uh. And this Dutch 17th century, it has to do with a lot of the fact that that was the standard. It was... Um, the 17th century um, was a period for the Netherlands when we saw ourselves as the most successful, we were a, a, a world power. Um, our artists were better than everybody else. And even in the 17th and 18th century, the Dutch 17th century was an international export product, if I may put it like that. Yeah. They were um, uh, the French, the English. They all wanted 17th century Dutch art. Mm -hmm. So... For the 19th century, the artists had, and that is what is continuously written about, that they had to try and emulate, 
yes, emulated the mm -hmm. 17th century. Um, and that is the standard that they had to try and find. Yep. Um, and were also, if they exhibited, for instance, in Paris, that is also uh, what the critics um, um, said, okay, well, this does is a bit like Ruisdael. This is a bit like Rembrandt. He's doing a very good imitation or emulation of that 17th century artist. And that is um, something that they had to fight against or maybe almost overcome. Mm -hmm. um, and you only see that happening um, with the advent of the Hague School artists. Yep. And this is, this is a, a school or a group of artists, and they weren't really a group as such, but they all, they were the same generation and they found another way of depicting Dutch landscape, which is no longer in direct relation with what the 17th century artists did, but they found their own um, style in that. And it has, there is also uh, a French Dutch, so it's the school of Barbizon. So these yeah. are artists who worked in Barbizon. Yeah. Um, where you see um, a relation. Again, the School of Barbizon looked back to the Dutch 17th century, so it is really a back and forth, which mm -hmm. is actually quite interesting, mm -hmm. but that's something else. Mm -hmm. But it is, um, it is that moment that, um, that the that Dutch come into their own and the Dutch 19th century artists come into their own, and they in turn become an export product, is, were, are internationally renowned. And you see that um, uh, that's especially in America and in Great Britain that these artists are very much sought after. So it is um, uh, you see, you know, sort of the, the oppression of the yoke of the 17th century, which took a long time to throw off and only found that in, say, the 1870s. Yeah. So they found their own way. Let's yes, say. exactly. One of the many interesting ideas I've read in your written work is that your observation about how artists and art connoisseurs and historians in the Netherlands began to revise the many biographies of artists that, uh, as you wrote, had long circulated about them um, in terms of their tales, let's say. Mm. For example, that Rembrandt was a miser and a lout, uh, of miser and a lout, mm. um, which was originally written down by artists and theoreticians such as Arnold Halbrocken. Mm. So could you talk about this period in relation to Dutch art history in terms of reassessing that past and how it affected, for instance, specifically museums and the popular opinion of art amongst the public? Because, um, for instance... Um, one of the things that makes the 19th century special, at least in the Netherlands, is that a lot of um, collections started opening up to the public. Mm -hmm. So drawing on what you just um, kind of painted a picture about, about um, artists working in the late 19th century, looking back to the, the 17th or the golden age, mm -hmm. whichever term you prefer these days. Could you talk about then how that affected the... Um, how people began to appreciate art on a more general level um, outside of the artist circles themselves? Um, yes, it's actually um, quite interesting. It, it, is, um, it is also has to do with um, um, a reappreciation of one's own history, I think. And that is something that you see happening all over the, um, um, or more in the in the in in Europe um, 
in the second half of the 19th century. Um, it had to do, and it, it, I'm not really sure, but I do think that what you see is that um, especially artists, so again, so this is a bit earlier than the Hague School, Yeah. but you see 19th century artists who um, the idea behind history painting or history genre mm -hmm. is the fact that you, as artists, uh, needed to be as truthful as possible. To find that truth, you have to delve back into that 17th century. So um, what happened was that artists, but also other people, um, started collecting not only paintings, but especially also objects of that 17th century. So we are talking about cabinets. We're talking about um, gold leather. Yes. Um, um, Bahang? Uh, wall coverings. Yes, gold leather, <laughs> for instance, wall coverings. Yes. Uh, and um, you see that you see uh, collections of those starting up. And that is what you find in the uh, Dutch 19th century history genre. So um, that would be a painting of Amalia van Solms visiting, um, I forget which artist, I think for Hulst, this is a lovely painting in the, in the collection of the Rijksmuseum. Um, And you see that the objects that he has there were to be found in his studio. And these objects were also, there was a series of exhibitions around the 1850s, 1860s of this, 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 these historical objects um, that made people aware of the fact that they were, um, that they gave information um, about that 17th century. And the next step was that uh, connoisseurs started delving into the archives, mm -hmm. not, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, taking the information for granted, which was given by the 17th century, early 18th century um, writers, yes. but that they started going back and they see a much more nuanced um, uh, idea of what, or not an idea, of um, much more nuanced facts yes. of the 17th century. Yes. And that is actually the start of a, a, a nation-based, okay, you know, we, we are a country and we shouldn't be just selling all our 17th century <laughs> art abroad, but it also um, uh, gives a, um, an awareness of how important that is. So this is, has, so it is, on the one hand, what the artists started doing, but also... Um, an idea of history of our own country is important. The other side of this coin is, of course, nationalism, which is something that, you know, that started... Also rises in exactly. the 19th century. So th there are two of these objects, but the fact that also um, the, the, the importance of history also um, starts um, giving an awareness of, yes, a collection should be open to the public because there's also an aspect of educating the public, that that is important as well. So that is one of the aspects why a museum is also um, a good institution mm -hmm. um, um, for um, the Netherlands or the nation as such, if you want to take it in a more general uh, sense, because this is the same things that you see happening in the Great Britain, in, in France, in Germany. I think the National Gallery in London it was opened in, for instance, like 1824, it is. That's what makes this period fascinating, is mm. all these museums pop up and yes. then suddenly people can, can visit them. Mm. Um, 
So I wanted to ask you, because I think it's uh, just quite fun. Um, hmm. uh, the 19th century also saw the introduction of photography. Yes, And this changed how people created art, but also how artists um, were perceived. And for the first time, we could actually look into their studio. Um, could you just briefly talk about what photography, um, just for fun, what uh, that did um, in relation to art of this period and uh, artists? It is, um, absolutely. Um, we could make a whole podcast, but just uh, <laughs> in general. <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, images of artists in their studio. Then, yes. In that case, we'll, we'll focus it. Um, the interesting thing is it has a lot to do with the, again, uh, I talked about uh, media and press. Mm -hmm. And um, say by the end of the 19th century, um, periodicals, magazines, uh, started coming out in great, great frequency, actually, during the whole 19th century. But that was also the time that, for the first time, photography was, they were able to reproduce photography in a large manner. Yes. And you see artists jumping onto that bandwagon. It is, it is a question of image. And... I was also talking about those, the idea of um, uh, collecting um, uh, historical artifacts and objects. The idea of a, um, of a studio, um, a place where um, serious work is done, where a lot of thinking is done. Yes. The problem with artists is that they, for a long time at least, they had um, um, the connotation of working with their hands and not with their Mind. heads. So, yes, and th that is something, especially at the beginning of the 19th century, is something that they had to sort of really wanted. They wanted the connotation with working with their minds, that mm -hmm. it is not only um, um, a menial job. Um and you still see that in these photographs. There are photographs where you see artists in the middle of the photo, in the middle of the photograph. So they're the, the focal point, the center point, and around them, you have all these different kinds of artworks. And if you look in the studio, you see a 17th century cabinet. You see um, uh, so this, this this leather or a small bench, and it has it has this connotation with the the place where. Um, in in a in a house which has um, and that the, the the studio or the place where um, serious work is done, you know, a contour. What do you call that? An office. An office, like exactly. A... So the office, which is you know somewhere in the house that is usually uh, decorated within this Dutch seventeenth century style. Mm -hmm. So you see artists sort of trying to sort of copy that and give that connotation. In most photographs, they're not at work. They're sort of mm. looking, you know, into, <laughs> the, into a left upper corner of their studio as if they're thinking really, really hard. So it has to do with image. How do I want Perception. to be perceived? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So it is, um, and this is, a, this is a specific series which, is a, which I have in mind, which was uh, made by Studio Hertz around 1900. And there are quite a lot of these series um, at home, abroad, but it was it's really fun. But at the same time, the other photos, those photos that are snapshots made by friends, and they give a, you know there's so much more lively and better interpretation, which I really like because you then you have an idea. Okay, as an art historian, I really do have a small uh, window yeah. to sort of really see what happens. And yes, I know photography always gives a certain perception, and it's not. But even so, it, yeah. so those are. I think most fun, but the others, those those 
post studio uh, images are, I, I really really like them as well it, it's good. Oh. So they have um, they're also interesting but there's a lot going on there yes well, it's a fascinating topic and it really really changed perception as you say mm. so um, to kind of move on from the 19th century now that you've painted a, a beautiful picture of um, what was happening behind the scenes in society and also in relation to art. I want to zoom in here on your work, um, both in the RKD as well as outside of the RKD, mm. um, relating to, for instance, museums. And so for those who speak Dutch or understand Dutch, uh, Mike has also spoken about um, Dutch artists in Paris in relation to, for instance, their training in the city and their working there in the podcast of the RKD itself, which is entitled Kunstkronik. Um, I will link to it in the bottom of the podcast notes. So be sure to have a listen in case you understand Dutch. It's a very lovely, um, let's say, meditative musing on um, yeah, Dutch artists in Paris and what that entailed. Um, but going a little bit further, um, I'd like to ask you about some of the interesting points um, now that we have an idea of what the, the 19th century looked like. Some of the interesting points that you've learned um, in general from your own research into Dutch artists living and working in Paris, um, because that's where I'd like to focus the rest of our talk. Mm. And I ask this because of your PhD thesis um, and dissertation, which is entitled Return to Paris. Uh, artistic exchanges between the Netherlands and France, 1789 to 1914, which you are carrying out at the Utrecht University here in the Netherlands. Yes, thank you so much for that heads up and uh, the link, which is which is really great. Um, uh, I um, yes, uh, Dutch in Paris. Actually, um, I've focused. You probably know this from your own research and PhD that you 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 have an idea which you start out with. In my case, <laughs> <laughs> where is this going? <laughs> and well, it it is a <laughs> what I started out with was artistic exchange. Yes. Um, in the end, if you are going to do artistic exchange between Dutch artists and French artists, what you end up with is probably looking at paintings by Dutch artists, paintings by French artists, mm. and then you start comparing them. Visually. And you say, okay, well, this is, oh, you see you see comparison there. Oh, mm. you see overlap there. Oh, but those are different. And that, for me, is not very exciting. Just formal analysis. Exactly. In the end, that's what it is. So how much um, new information will that really end up with? Because um, anybody, you know, can look at paintings and then start, you know, seeing, okay, well, I see this and I see this. Um, you, you can ask, of course, the obvious question and the one you always have to ask as an art historian, okay, so why is that? But um, I miss the, the the personal aspect of mm -hmm. it. What I find really interesting, and I, I noticed I really like that in your last podcast that with Marge, uh, she says exactly the same, that it has to do with art and society yes, and the, yes. the combination How of... How they interweave together. Exactly, and that, that it is that art is an expression of society. So I changed my focus to... Um, to the artists and their motivations um, of, you know, why go to Paris? First instance, so that's, what, that's one, but at the second time, once you're there, what are the choices you make as an artist? Do you want to become successful there? Um, how do you become successful there? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so in the end... That's uh, a good question. Yeah. Uh, 
Thank you. Um, what, what you get in the end is probably a sort of a self-help book. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I notice <laughs> is that um, that the um, what happens is something that is, I won't say universal, mm -hmm. but it is something that still goes on today. Um, and that the choices they make and the situations they find themselves in are something that I know. Um, I've lived abroad for uh, quite some time um, when I was young and again when I was a bit older. And you make different kinds of choices. And actually, that was a question that I wanted to ask you yes. because you moved from Cincinnati to Amsterdam. That's the way. So what, what, ha what happened when you arrived in Amsterdam? What, how did you find yourself? Um, I, in general, am the kind of person that can be completely content alone for mm. um, many hours, days, or weeks at a time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and I had also lived in Copenhagen um, mm. in the summer of 2007, actually, getting getting back there, um, for to study Scandinavian architecture. And I had done internships in San Francisco, mm -hmm. and I also lived in Manhattan for a while uh, for an internship, and I also lived in Dusseldorf. Mm -hmm. So I have a history myself of being in unfamiliar places, and I think that's incredibly exciting. Mm -hmm. But those were all temporary trips, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, so when I found myself in Amsterdam for a longer duration, um, and let's say past a, a, a quick, um, you know, few weeks or a few months, then you start to realize that the this is your home. <laughs> yes. And um, yeah, one of the things um, I think can be that I hear often from people who are not Dutch or come to the Netherlands um, for a visit is that uh, the, 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 the Dutch people, the Dutch, can be um, off-putting or um, not so friendly or roll out the red carpet for you. Um, and on the surface level, that might be true. But what I often found myself is that, um, and because I was already interested in the history and the culture, mm -hmm. that sort of changed um, my perspective from most people. Mm -hmm. um, but I found that when I started to actually understand and speak Dutch, mm -hmm. um, especially in Amsterdam, that's sort of the golden key to mm -hmm. Dutch culture. Because, of course, people are going to be friendly mm -hmm. and um, be welcoming in their own way. But you know, you're probably here for a temporary time. Mm. And what is the reason to invest in you as mm. um, a visitor or even someone who's here for a year or two? Mm -hmm. I have um, a bunch of American friends who live in Amsterdam and they all work in, for instance, technology companies based in San Francisco. And they're here for a few years and they, they never learn Dutch. Mm. Um, and they have a great time, but they're seeing the culture and the country on a different level. Mm -hmm. And I'm... Um, uh, best well in Geburgert, uh, <laughs> very well integrated, uh, as you could say in English. But I find that once you start to speak Dutch, um, that whole mindset switches because you can very easily fall into these people don't understand me. Mm -hmm. This is so off-putting, like blah, blah, blah. But it's really that you don't understand them. Mm. And so once you do, uh, in this case, learn to speak Dutch and can make yourself understood and uh, crack jokes and conversations, mm then you really realize that um, none of those thoughts were really valid. They might have been if you're here temporarily, but if you're here on a long-term basis, um, and I'm, I'm very proud to be Dutch. <laughs> um, yeah, this is such a beautiful, fascinating, rich country, and you really um, will have a different view of the society here with 
the language. That's mm. really key. And people are so readily switching over to English, which doesn't make it easy. But if you have a desire, then that's 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 really useful, mm. and it makes your life and experience richer. Um, it was actually quite interesting what you're saying because you say, okay, so what you really need to do to sort of find um, uh, an own, your your own space in a in a strange surroundings is actually learn the language, um, and that is one of the things that I see with those Dutch artists traveling to Paris that. Um, a lovely quote of a completely unknown artist today, Frederik Henrik Kemmerer, who um, didn't have time to learn the language and he finds himself very much alone and he traveled together with one of the Hague School artists who became really well known in the 1870s in the Netherlands, uh, Jacob Maris, and they traveled in the 1860s. And he, um, he writes that, well, again, he finds himself very alone, but he is Um, he's very lucky. He starts studying in the atelier of Jean-Léon Jérôme and he very quickly um, learns new people. Um, and with his, so within a year, his French is really good. And he has a, a new group of friends mm -hmm. who take him under their wing. And um, in the end, he decides to stay. And he might be completely unknown today, but he was one of the most famous artists in his time. Uh, exhibiting at the uh, Paris Salon uh, almost yearly, winning medals, winning a Légion d'honneur, mm -hmm. um, and paintings that were bought by uh, really um, big American tycoons like uh, Vanderbilt. Um, so strange thing is about these artists that I am studying that they have this this um, uh, they are successful in their own time but most of them are completely unknown today there are not you know that's that's so that's very interesting sort of what you see but what you explained is something that you see in many accounts you see them the you know sort of why why would we it is very difficult to sort of Yes. Um, Good work. So the, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> the, um, so the the uh, the, um, the become part of that French art world, mm -hmm. um, and you really have to try very hard. So if you have somebody who will give you a leg up or will open the door for you, mm -hmm. that really helps. But it almost almost always starts with communication. Um, and if you're willing to invest, um, you see that it is um, possible. And it's not a lot of artists that I end up with. There are about 800 who go. But those who really succeed, 30 maybe, 40. Oh, wow. Um, and then I'm talking about um, the, um, um, the forms of external recognition as you wish um so yes have you never found do you find yourself um feeling at home in the netherlands do you or do you feel sort of split so you're part american part dutch so ending up in a sort of in between Uh, perhaps in my first few years here, you do sort of live in this parallel universe. Mm -hmm. um, 
because you can't read, for instance, and then it's frustrating. But then around here, three or four, you can read, but you're still um, carrying around metaphorical luggage of, um, for instance, your Americanisms mm. or expressions, which you quickly drop because people don't understand them. But then some people get stuck there. Mm -hmm. And especially if you don't have a reason um, to be here, I fell in love here. Mm. That was one of my reasons to stay among many others mm. uh, for a love of the arts, being one of the others. <laughs> um, uh, but you do sort of live in a parallel reality. But I really was hungry to be, um, I don't want to say Dutch, but I was hungry to drop all that. Mm -hmm. And so I really feel that, um, I mean, in all honesty, in, only in the past maybe two or three years has my Dutch become, if I can say, near near to fluent. Of course, I, I miss some expressions. Um, but um, But now I feel totally... I mean, I honestly can't imagine living anywhere else at this point. <laughs> I would love to retire in the Laura Valley. That's my ultimate goal. <laughs> but at this point, um, when I go back to the United States, people, mm. for instance, say, like, are you British? Mm. Uh, because you sound really different. Um, or, you know, your clothes look really funny. Mm. Where are you from? And, <laughs> but I also, I'm now at the point where it's like, well, I'm actually from Cincinnati. And actually, from my perspective, your clothes look really funny. Uh, because, for instance, to, to break down that, there is a difference in European and American tailoring. Um, but, yeah, I mean, at this point, I, I go to the United States and I visit my hometown. Mm. I do not visit my home, mm. which my parents are sometimes perturbed by. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is my home. So, And it really takes the language and appreciation, a, a willingness and a hunger to... At some point, you realize it's you're not leaving, and mm. you know why would you stay in this parallel universe of frustration? Or you know, I think it was Susie Menkes, the fashion journalist, when she went to Paris in the '80s for the fashion shows without speaking French, saying things like they don't understand me. But when mm. she spoke French, she realized that she mm. didn't understand them, and mm. I really that's really stuck with me because that, that's that's really well said on her part, and that's how it works. Mm. But in that case, do you realize that? Um, you don't understand the Dutch, or are you starting to understand them? In what sense? Well, um, you say that uh, Susie Menkes um, in France, uh, when she started to speak French, mm -hmm. um, she realized that she didn't understand them. Ah. So in this case, um, is that something that you find as well, that you still find some Dutch um, notions or uh, mannerisms that you find them curious? Or do you uh, like... You know, I, might, you I might give a chuckle, but, uh, <laughs> but I understand it. And um, I, I, um, I think empathize is the wrong word because that's looking down. But I can see it from both perspectives mm -hmm. and I can choose which one mm -hmm. I want to jump into. Mm -hmm. uh, but at this point, nothing really sticks out as strange to mm -hmm. me. And I can happily and very readily, you know, sing happy birthdays and do, um, you know, the hoggle slog on the toast mm -hmm. for a new baby. And I'm, I'm really well integrated, which because is, yeah, I, I have a family here mm -hmm. and that's very different than someone who's just here for a few years for work or even an artist that pops in for a residency or something. Okay. And I also, you know, studying, that's also, um, I also, maybe that's good to point out. Mm. I also knew that I was in this rather unique position because mm. I was here mm. and I specifically chose not to get my master's degrees in architecture, master degree in architecture, because 
I didn't want to, I had interned um, in offices in mm. Dusseldorf, Manhattan, San Francisco. And I just thought you can spend years of your life drawing a building that's funding gets plugged at the last minute. Mm. And it's, I'm by trade of mostly a writer and editor. And I like the speed of that mm -hmm. and the ideas that come across with that. And it doesn't exist in architecture. So I moved here to work for an architecture mm. magazine and then ended up staying. Um, but then I thought, you know, I'm in this unique position. This country is fascinating. I grew up in Cincinnati and there's the Taft Museum of Art, which is this beautiful collection mm. built in the end of the 19th mm. century, gifted to the city. And then also the Cincinnati Art Museum. And they have a bunch of Franz Halls. And I mean, it's honestly for an American museum or even city, there's so many Dutch paintings. Uh, and if I can say, I actually know a quote by heart um, mm. from the Cincinnati Times Star, I think, that says, I doubt that there are many people who realize that there is in Cincinnati a great number of fine pictures by the old Dutch masters. So I had a love of them there. Mm. And I thought if I'm in this unique position, why not deepen that knowledge and use it as a way to get to know my what is now my my home country mm. even better. So I, I honestly think at this point I know Dutch history more than a lot of Dutch people, <laughs> which I, <laughs> yes, I'm very probably. proud of. I, but I, I, I love it. So I'm quite unique in that sense. Mm. You know, I, I don't think there's many people out there that readily adopt and are so quick to throw off their old identity. True. Um, which I noticed was actually for the Dutch artist, again, my Dutch artist, that they use that to their advantage. Mm -hmm. um, because instead, the French had only one market, namely Paris, or at least France. The French art market is mostly... Centralized. Mostly <laughs> Paris at least in the 19th century, um, for the Dutch who made it in Paris. Uh, Ari Schreffer, for instance, who has still a lovely, his home is now in Paris, is a, is a lovely museum, uh, Musée de la Vie Romantique, which is really worth a visit. But um, he still had family in uh, the Netherlands, in Rotterdam, to be exact. Um, Ari Johannes Lama, who was the first director of Boymans van Beuningen. Somehow there's a red thread here. Uh, <laughs> really back at the sure. beginning. <laughs> but um, he used that to his advantage. He could... Um, um, he worked, if I may put it like that, sounds. But he, he worked the, f the the French art market, but also the Dutch art market, mm -hmm. and his his uncle and his nephew Lamas were his mediators here, which was really clever. And you see more of those artists doing that. Um, so especially those that knew how to sort of find their position, so they they knew how to use that. You know, those both nationalities, both places of where they came from and where they they ended up ended up um at the same time i i i was which has nothing to do with which i really found very interesting i i met um uh, a librarian in um a dutch librarian in paris and he once told me that um he he also stayed for love um and really made his life there but what he was doing i was wondering if you were doing mm -hmm. that as well is that he um was watching children's series and ah. reading children's books because he really wanted to sort of, you know, understand what, you know, he missed that that part of his growing up because his part of growing up was in 
the Netherlands. You do miss that part. As much as I can sing happy birthday and things, mm. there are just songs and experiences that I will not have from not going to mm. an elementary school here. Mm -hmm. And I have discovered that. Um, but it's not, I don't think that really, you know, I'm not really sure. I, I wouldn't have done that um, because I would have accepted that. And there are some things that I will never understand. Um, at the same time, there's somebody else who also uh, spent again for love, stayed in Paris. Um, and that's why I asked you, he had this in-between feeling. And I actually, I, I understand that quite well. Growing up um, abroad until my 12th, so I miss the Dutch elementary part ah, as well. So you know how this works. So, so <laughs> I, I know how this works. And my colleagues, sometimes they, you know, they sing songs. What, what are is you this talking going about? on here? <laughs> but um, um, I, I, I like the in-between. And I notice or see that some of the... Um, of, and, and this is really, it really ha doesn't have much to do with my thesis. This is absolutely not very uh, scientific very or whatever. Uh, the, the, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but it, it, it is, I find that very interesting to sort of, it, it is part of my method to sort of to try and get as close as possible to the artist that I am researching mm -hmm. because um, it is, I think, the only way, well, no, in this case, the only way to sort of um, do we have a word uh, for that? Um, thorough, thoroughly. Yes, to 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 get to the bottom to, of it completely, completely in the most to, thorough to, to, way. It is the understanding yes. of them as yes. much as possible. How does the nineteenth century work? How how you know? There's this this lovely book uh, which is called The Great Cat Massacre, and I forget who the writer is. He's an American historian, and. He writes about um, the fact that if you, and you were talking about that, actually, understanding jokes, if you, if, you, if you start understanding the joke, then you understand the, 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 the society that you're getting at. And he explains a story about these cats that are being murdered by two assistants of a printer. And it was the greatest joke ever. Oh, me with my 21st century um, morals. What? Murdering cats? A joke. How can you? So he explains it. Um, I still don't really understand it, but I do get a sense of it. Well, that aspect, you know, is is um, is something that I would really like to 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 use for my thesis. That's why I use as many primary sources and letters as possible. Um, and also, yes, maybe the experiences of people like you, like me, like the people I was just talking about, um, that, that you know, the, the, um, that you sort of have this, this, that you get a better sense of how that works. And I think that's a, I still think that that's a very good method to sort of use in a thesis. Um, and also with the 19th century, you're dealing with, um, they would call ego documents. So mm, those, you exactly. know, as opposed to the 17th, there's still journals, diaries, mm. letters. So you get a, a peek into the mind of these artists. That's why the 19th century is so much more, yeah. uh, maybe easy or there's more. Accessible, there's, quite literally. Exactly, accessible. That's it. So, yes. So um, at some point I can just say it, it becomes a choice, which which I don't want to call it a reality, but which mindset you live in. Mm, and I'm, I'm firmly living in the Dutch mindset at this point. I find it, uh, <laughs> my life is here. You know, that's uh, the best way to put it. Mm. Um, so just to continue on about your topic, um, 
uh, of, the, of your thesis, to continue on about the topic of your thesis, in the late 2010s, because I want to touch a bit on museums as well, mm. you were a guest curator of the exhibit The Dutch in Paris, yes. 1789 to 1914, which ran from late 2017 to early 2018 mm. at the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the exhibition itself, um, its concept, how it relates to your research in terms of, for instance, uh, what you contributed to the catalog mm. or certain works that you like really wanted to have in the show mm. um, since you were the guest curator. And then could you talk a bit about um, the exhibition itself for those who maybe didn't see it or aren't familiar with um, the museum itself? Mm. Um, what was it like as a physical space in terms of its design? And um, what is one thing that you really... Um, remember about it in a really special way. Ah. Um, the, the idea of doing something with um, Dutch artists in Paris actually um, germinated um, during an earlier exhibition that um, I worked on at the Taylor's Museum, which was called Mythe van het Atelier, Myths of the Studio. Um, and there were quite a few artists there that were on show that were also in Paris. So we thought, actually, we should do something with mm. this. Um, so I think the first time I talked with the Van Gogh Museum, because where else? I mean, you know, Van Gogh is the, the I, example. I honestly can't. Of, there's nowhere else you would go. <laughs> at the same time, I found it, re at that time, found it rather scary because it is the Van Gogh Museum. Mm. And, you know, this is my idea, but would would they take it? And mm -hmm. it is something that they've been, um, they've been, of course, they've been thinking of, of more often uh, doing something with artists in Paris. Um, so, I don't know, I think uh, uh, somewhere in 2012 or maybe 2013 is the first time that I talked there. And it took about uh, two years more before they said, yes, let's do it, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I started out um, thematically um, and I did this together with Edwin Becker, who's the um, head of exhibitions at the Van Gogh Museum. Mm -hmm. um, so he was my partner there. And we started out thematically, but you get, you know, he's thinking about, okay, what are the most important themes of Paris? So that is education for the Dutch, huh? mm -hmm. education, exhibition, exhibition, art dealers, um, inspiration. Mm -hmm. So we had these themes. So we started out, you know, okay, which works would work for that? So it was sort of a bazaar. So you had Can no idea, except that they were really beautiful paintings. Yeah. Or, and yes, they showed <laughs> education. And yes, there's something with art dealers. But um, so in the end, uh, we really broke it down and tried to find uh, the voices of several artists who could become sort of a key figures for a generation um, who were exemplary, you could say, for a certain period. Um, so we ended up in the end with, and there's there's the, the bit of, um, of uh, the artistic exchange, because that is something that you could visualize, which was something we also found scary, because what happens is that a public looks at them and they say, hmm, that one's beautiful. Oh, that's a bit less, isn't it? So, so and especially because 
Um, say, for instance, uh, one of our key figures was Johann Bartelt Jonkind, um, mm-hmm. who went to Paris um, with a royal stipend from the Netherlands. He studied here in The Hague. Um, and he went to Paris. And um, he first started out as a very traditional artist, um, painting cityscapes, Paris primarily, uh, but also Marines. Um, and uh, he won a medal and he did quite well, um, but had a drinking problem and didn't, <laughs> didn't have any more money. So he had to come back to the Netherlands, but was very, very unhappy here. So his French friends first organized an auction selling his paintings that they found in his studio, which he had left behind. And then a second auction in which they all donated one or more paintings so that they had a small fund so that from where he could live. So Mm -hmm. two of his friends went to pick him up um, because they were scared that he, you know, end up in every bar along the way and would never, you know, never arrive. (laughs) Um, But coming back in those two years here, he he really changed his style so it became much more free um and um he had um already met claude monet Mm -hmm. and eugene boudin so you see him there from the one hand the the young impressionists on the the other hand um an artist boudin was also was one of the proto-impressionists, you could say. So his brushstroke was always also quite free. So there um, you see Junkin changing his style and, you know, becoming much more, starting to to experiment with these, these loose brushstrokes. Yeah. Ending up where somebody like Monet says, he was really, uh, I learned painting from, I can't remember exactly from him, whom, but it is... Jonkind, who really trained my eye, who really learned me to to see, taught me to see. So that so there you see that 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 um, uh, well, oh yes, and that we wanted to hang uh, Jonkind next to uh, Monet. Yeah. And especially if you, I really wanted the Gare Saint Lazare, yeah. and uh, uh, I, I, the the Dutch would be blown away. I mean, you know, Jonkind is. Really, very good. And if you hang, hang uh, Monet next to it, especially one of those works, it'll become tricky. So mm. that's something that we really had to think about. How do we do this? Um, and still give the Dutch um, a stage yep. on which to shine. So um, so we chose eight artists, um, eight Dutch artists. And then starting out, which I really find very important, if you introduce artists that are not known to a large public, I find it very important to sort of make sure that the that you could you are introduced to the artist, a portrait, yep. actually, of who it is. So we started with that. And another, uh, which is also I still find fascinating, location and the role of location in a research, but also in a studio. So to sort of ground the person, okay, where did they live? And what was the area of Paris in this case was important. So that is the two aspects that we showed. So those are sort of documentary. And then um, uh, um, a series, small, very small series of uh, paintings or drawings by the Dutch artist in comparison with the French, which they intermingled with. So we had Gerard van Spandonk, who's a still life artist, court painter, really beautiful, really beautiful work. Um, fascinating man who ended up 
together with uh, the, the French uh, and the revolution was in his lifetime and he wasn't touched at all. How does that work? Somebody who was a court painter and you have a revolution and he ended up in the uh, one of the um, on the board of the Institut de France. So that, that is the highest, you know, um, uh, institution within the French art world. Mm-hmm. A Dutchman. Mm. Really curious. So, well, I tell all about that in my uh, how that works within my uh, in my thesis. But for the exhibition, you couldn't do that. But you did need to touch on that. So yeah. that is something that happened in the catalogue. Ari Schreffer, who I talked about earlier. Um, who was also a court painter and um, master to the uh, princes and princesses of Louis Philippe. <laughs> and um, also, at the same time, such a principal man who, who really um, makes choices based on his principles, which is fascinating, but the work at the same time and that studio where uh, Chopin came and all kinds of, because he was sort of, a, a, the, the, the art world was and it continuously, as you see all these art worlds mingled. So it's not only visual arts, but it's also music and it's theatre. And it's so much more intermingled than you can, than you can ever imagine from our viewpoint now today. Um... Jungkind, as I said before, I talked about that. Uh, Friedrich Hendrik Kemmerer, again, completely unknown. Um, and that's um, that's always the fine thing, that if you make an exhibition, that you are the only one who knows what's not there. Ah. So ah. There, are, there are works that you really wanted, but it is sometimes very, very hard to sort, of, to, to sort of, you know, get your hands on certain paintings. And this one was in a... The owner was a very rich American in New York, and um, he uh, it took a lot of time via uh, Sotheby's, uh, the auction house, to sort of to get into contact with this gentleman. Um, and then, in the very end, he said yes, and we thought yay. But he said um, the insurance contract. Let's see, um, um, the insurance for water damage. Oh, that's excluded normally. Mm. Okay, so, okay, well, we'll go to the insurer and see what he says. Yes, fine. Um, fire. Yes, we can also, you know, we can incorporate that. Yeah. A nuclear world war. That's quite specific. Uh, it's, it's one of the, uh, the, uh, the items that, you know, are excluded in a, in a contract. Yes. And he said, I want that um, excluded as well. So I want that to be insured. And the insurer said, sorry, we can't. No. <laughs> Guys, why is this a problem? I mean, fire, water, but evidence is possible. <laughs> and you no, work, wouldn't you think that that is something? It's that quite a stipulation. Well, I mean, I don't think this painting would be that important, you know, if the nuclear world war would break out. But so that's why the painting in the end didn't come, which is a still, this is still uh. that. <laughs> anyway, so there's that. And then that's downstairs. And, and I... Uh, sorry, do you know who the um, architect is of the, well, relatively new exhibition wing of the... It's, I it's forget the Japanese. name, but I know it's Japanese and it's from the late 90s. Exactly. And um, yeah. it, is a, it is a very... Um, it, it, there are two floors. It's actually quite a, 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 a clear... Uh, architectural design, although the walls are curved, which is not ideal for an exhibition, but there's always a workaround. They, they did that really, really well at the, uh, at the Van Gogh Museum. Um, 
But we had downstairs, so that's until, say, 1850, 1860, and then upstairs. And we also changed that because downstairs is the slightly classical, where the modernist um, artists were reserved for upstairs. So we had uh, George Hendrik Breitner, who's a really good uh, Dutch Impressionist who went to Paris um, in the 1880s. And uh, I think you talked about what you said, I'm very good at being alone. I think Breitner is as well. Um, he was in Paris for a few months and as far as we can see, didn't meet anyway. uh, well a few Dutch people. He met uh, the brother of uh, Vincent van Gogh, Theo van Gogh, who is an art dealer, and another art dealer who was based in Amsterdam later on, uh, Albert Jan van Wisseling. But we don't really know who we else, and we have the idea that he, you know, he, he walked the streets and mm -hmm. sort of saw the outside really, really well. So, okay, so Breitner, who's a photographer as well, yep. actually, makes really beautiful street photography. Um, we have a collection of 2,000 of his negatives, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, then we have uh, Vincent van Gogh, of course, and that's in his work you see... Um, no one else, as far as I know, can see the development within a year, which is incredible. Um, and you see him, when he starts out painting Paris, you see that he still has this notion of Dutch art in his mind. And he tries to sort of, to sort of combine the, the, the idea, of the, combine what he saw in Paris with what he had learnt in the Netherlands, and mm -hmm. you see, it's, so they, they they don't really work. And then after a year, you see suddenly sort of snap, and that the light and the way he's done it, and it is incredible. And that is still the choice of works, which um, was not easy. It's out of the collection of the Van Gogh Museum, but they have um, there's a lot of lending going on continuously. So the works that we chose in the end. Um, were maybe not our first choice, but it really gave that development, which is, you know, was really, really good. Um, then Kees van Donga, uh, and I'm still very proud of the fact he had um, uh, a painting, which was, I think, uh, the Folie Bergère, if I remember correctly. And he'd cut up that painting into six different um, uh, pieces. And they were spread over, I don't know, most of different collections, somewhere museums, somewhere private collections. But we could re we had reconstructed that oh, painting. Cool. So it was it was there for the first time since it, you know, was sold piecemeal to others. And we ended up with um, Mondrian, which is a bit further than the remit of 19th century. But, you know, it, 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 it was not? before 19th <laughs> Exactly. <no>, why not? Um, <laughs> And um, I had a lovely um, uh, cineographer um, who's actually uh, worked in theatre for most of his life. So he, had, he did theatre and scenography in museums. Um, and I really, he was very architectural about it. So he used that space, but also with, with the colours red and blue. Uh, which were really popping, uh, and I remember the the, the um, um, that the curator of um, one of the um, the Mondrians said, "My goodness, Mondrian on blue, um, uh, it worked." But um, no, it worked. I think, but he he was really 
en bleu. Um, I like that actually. It's the same, but it, it was. Um, I know there were quite a few comments on the way um, that was done, but um, I still think it was really good. So that was it. Um, uh, and you had a second question in this this line, which I forget. Sorry. Just one thing that you really um, just remember, but I think um, I think you've answered it with uh, the blue and the striking uh, ah. exhibition space. Um, just because I forget off the top of my head, was this before or after that building itself was remodeled to become the entry? Was this still when it was a small annex that you had to access underground to space mm. and you go down? That's yes, the, and then go back up yeah. to see the, uh, yeah. uh, the the collection presentation. Yes. No, it's, it was already like that. Okay. Um, so to zoom out a little bit more uh, away from your research and more about the 19th century, 19th century art scene in relation to Dutch art history as a whole, um, and because we're, you know, concluding, mm. uh, what is it um, that's really kept you engaged with this subject over the years? And mm. what is it about this period in history and its art that fascinates you the most? And then to conclude, what is it about this period of study that it can teach society in general mm. about the contemporary culture, artistic or otherwise, today? Hmm. Good questions. Mm. Uh, um, first of all, the fascination. Um, maybe because it isn't really that long ago. Mm. Um, maybe because um, the society we live in today is formed further, I should say, um, as we know it, um, of course, I, um, um, I think probably for our generation, the advent of digitalization, the computer, um, smartphones is probably just as revolutionary as the advent of um, mass media, newspapers, uh, magazines. But I, I don't know, but I can imagine that the the um, stream of information uh, coming from before newspapers that that you know we we sometimes say that it is almost dizzying the amount of information that we get um, um, and I can imagine that that sort of was the same for the the 19th century um, but it is also because it it's it is um, <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm trying to sort of find um, way no of it, 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 it is no, I know. <laughs> it, there is. <laughs> it, it is. It, again, it is a sort of a fascination for um, what has gone by and the result. You know, the, the so we have these artworks, mm -hmm. and they are again going back to beauty, and I find, and it is not. Um, Every work, and I, I notice also that the longer I work within 19th century, the harder it becomes to find something that I say, yes, that I want to take home with me. I want to understand it to sort of to 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 sort of you know go to the, to the to the again to the bottom of it mm -hmm. to sort of to understand why this has come into being, why this work still exists. Um, 
So it is, it is still a quest for answers. And there is still so much information. So no, not information is the wrong word. So many stories to sort of to be found. And it is um, it is a bit of the detective, maybe. I don't know if that is. So it is, it's a question of trying to understand. I really like the fact that you can go through all this. And you think, ah, that's it. Um, it's also easier than my own era. Um, because I don't, I don't really understand. Well, I do understand. I think I understand. But um, at the same time, there's so much going on at the same time, and a bit of perspective. So it really has to do with time. Um, gives mm -hmm. a better overview. Does mm -hmm. this make sense? Mm -hmm. Something like that. Um, what can we learn? Uh, a lot. Uh, <sighs> the, 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 the point is, we make the same mistakes over and well, that's over. Well said. Yes. Um, and. By looking at history, art history, um, it gives an idea of, all right, so things will um, happen differently from today, but yes, you can learn so much from what has happened before. Mm -hmm. um, so in a sense, history, and then art history, because you can look at beautiful things yeah. <laughs> and talk <laughs> about them, um, is crucial to sort of for our own for our own age to sort of understand what's going on mm -hmm. uh, to get a grip on things um, and then hopefully that's I still hope that in the end people will make different choices at least I hope they will but they don't but anyway I still hope that it might work something to do with that I think this has been a fascinating deep dive into a century that I only know from cities and perhaps architecture and museums. Mm. So not only did I learn an incredibly a lot of new information, but <laughs> it was also just a fun and enjoyable conversation. So thank you so much for being uh, my guest on Dutch Art and Design today. Ditto, completely. Thank you so much.